We've been in a brief little series called Endurance, New Testament Postcards. Two weeks ago, we looked at walking in love in 2 John. Last week, we looked at walking in truth in 3 John. So tonight, we're just going to flip one more page, and we're going to look at the little postcard that is called the letter of Jude. Um, Jude is about contending for the faith. Contending is an, e- is an interesting word because the connotation is um, wrestling, fighting. It's interesting in our generation, I don't know if this is the first time in 2,000 years, but in our generation, the people who point out error are the ones who are called divisive. Where, biblically speaking, it's always been the ones who created the error that were considered to be divisive in the body of Christ. Uh, we're, 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 we're taught to be kind and nice, uh, which is a Christian virtue, but we're taught to be kind and nice to the exclusion of uh, standing for truth. So this little book of Jude, um, really it needs at least three messages, uh, maybe more, uh, but we're going to do it in one night, so uh, if you drop your pencil, you drop the course, okay? <laughs> All right, let's, let's look at this little verse. Uh, contending for the faith, that, that phrase, uh, it's really not, um, it's not in our generation seen to be something that people want to be involved in, and yet I believe there are particular moments in church history when certain generations are called to the battle the battle for truth. Jude was speaking about just such a historical moment, and and as I wrote on your outline, his words are disturbingly relevant for our time. So, look at at the little letter to Jude. We're going to look at uh, the threat threat of apostates in the first seven verses. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, though, you know everything once and for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these angels indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, let's see if we can break this down pretty quickly. Um, who we are and who they are. Jude is an interesting character, and I wish we knew more about him. There is a humility in his introduction that you might not recognize. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, it's interesting that he claims to be the brother of James. This is almost certainly the James who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem the James who was the half-brother of Jesus, which would make Jude what? The half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't say this is a letter from Jude, the brother of Jesus. He, he sort of uh, comes at it from a different perspective. He, he admits that he's the brother of James. That's probably, that may be how he came into the faith. Uh, James didn't come into the faith until after the resurrection. This is not the, one of the Jameses that were in the, the inner circle of the twelve. This was a brother who had, pro- both of these brothers had probably been in that family gathering when they tried to discourage Jesus and say, listen, you're, you're embarrassing the family. 
if you're really the Messiah, why don't you just go to Jerusalem and make a big show of it? I mean, if you're going to do it, do it. Let's get a crowd. Let's get a following. You know, you're, you're out here in, in, in Galilee in the middle of nowhere. Let's, let's make, this, make a splash. But it was probably more like a sarcastic encouragement. But there's something about seeing someone come back from the dead that kind of changes the rules of the game. James becomes um, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's eventually martyred for his faith. And here's Jude, a brother of James, but he sees himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I love that he addresses this not to any particular church. This is not like Paul's letters. He simply says, I'm writing to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Three words there, called, loved, and kept. Called means God has the initiative. I'm writing to those that God has reached out and drawn to himself. The ones that are loved by God. Listen, when, when, when we talk about beloved in God the Father, that is a hint of the original purpose of creation. When God, speaking to himself, said, let us create man in our image. It was the natural impulse of a giver to have an object that he could express his love to. And so it only makes sense that as the relationship that had been broken by sin in the Garden of Eden, as it's now being restored by the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, one of the great titles gifted to us as Jesus followers is that we are beloved of God. Then he says, kept, kept for, Christ, for Jesus Christ. The word means safely preserved until that final day. It's a great address uh, that is included here. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now he's going to use this term beloved. He, it shows up a couple of different times in this book because that's the title for the people of God that, that Jude seems to be most enamored by. But he's going to talk about who they are. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. He said, I, I wanted to write about our common salvation. That was the goal. I, I sat down to, to write this letter and, and, to, and, and, and celebrate what we share, what we have in common. The blood of Jesus Christ that makes us family. But as I pondered it, I decided that I had to turn my attention to something else. There had been a report, apparently, from whatever church that he's writing to, that there had been false teachers. This is a big problem in the first century, which makes perfect sense. The enemy of all things Jesus would do anything he could to sidetrack the church, especially in this generation of its infancy. And so one of his earliest strategies was to send false teachers who would be just familiar enough with, with, what, with, with the gospel message that they could twist it, that they could reshape it. They could just take it off one or two degrees, but the farther that you walked with their message, the farther away you got from the gospel. Jude said, I, I, I want to write to you about an appeal that you contend earnestly. This faith has been handed down to the saints. It is something that that we share. I want you to contend because this idea of the faith that we've received, it is the truth about God and we have transferred it from church to church, from life to life, from generation to generation. We have transferred this truth that we've learned about God because we come to the Word of God and we systematically separate truth from error as we evaluate all messages by the Word of God. Um, I, I, I spent this afternoon working on this week's Truth Currents. And, and just a sneak preview, uh, I've been very disappointed over the last couple of weeks as I've seen uh, prominent leaders and pastors within evangelicalism come out and criticize pastors who are fighting the culture war. I mean, even for one to, to compare us uh, 
He basically said Christians who fight the culture wars are like the, the builders of the Tower of Babel. They're trying to create a platform for their own self-glorification. Folks, uh, that's not what I see in the spirit-filled Christians that, are, that I'm around. We're trying to stand for what's true. And yet this is an example of, of being told that the people who are declaring that, that the Word of God is true and, and this is where we stand, we're the ones that are divisive. Well, you're going to hear more about that when Truth Currents comes out on, on Friday. But, 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 but they ignore passages like this. Contend for the faith. Take what you know. Uh, you can read these verses later, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. That is Paul's consolidation of the message of the gospel. It's the content of the faith that was carefully handed uh, from generation to generation. That's, what, that's the content that Paul says to Timothy, entrust this to, to men that, that, that can be careful with it, that are trustworthy with what's true. Well, he says there are those who have, I, I love this, you can almost, it's hard to tell tone in the printed word, but you can almost feel the disdain here in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who were marked long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, he uses language that that really kind of gives us a sinister description that's dripping with contempt. Now he's going to tell us in verses 5 through 7 about, uh, sort of typologically, he's going to talk about the judgment that, that is coming for these people. But, um, but, but there's a phrase here, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to look very far in our generation to see churches now adopting practices, putting their seal of approval, their, their stamp of, of approval on practices that the Bible specifically stands against. And what is the, what's the, the, the justification behind what they do? They always say, well, we want to be a grace-filled church. But see, that's exactly what Judah's talking about. These are people who are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior. In other words, they say things like, well, God is love. Well, God is love. But, love, but, but, but he loves you so much that he's holding you to a standard that is necessary for you to be in relationship with him. You see, where we are in our generation, most churches, frankly, most pastors are arguing that, that, that you can live any way you want to, you can practice anything you want to do, you can have any value system you want, and God will adjust to you. Folks, Jude says you got to contend against those people. Because that is a path that, that, that leads people to destruction. It takes people who are separated from God by sin, and it, and, and it tells them, you don't have to do anything. You're fine just the way you are. It's not true. And it's dangerous. Well, he says, look at, look at God's track record. There's a lot of Old Testament allusions in, in Jude and and we could spend a lot of time uh, breaking them all down, but, but let's just, let's just look, at, look at them in categories. Jude loves threes. He has everything in a, in, is in a triad. And so in verses 5 through 7, he's basically just going to give us three examples of judgment. We're not going to explore them in great detail, except to say Jude is simply, uh, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's, just, he's basically reminding them of God's track record against ungodliness. He says, I want to remind you, verse 5, though you know everything once and for all, 
that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about an entire generation. They came out of slavery and then said, we don't like the way God's handling things. We don't like Moses, the designated leader. We'd rather go back to our cushy jobs with all of our, our wealth and, and ease and comfort that we had in Egypt. But talk about spiritual amnesia. And God said, okay, um, I can't work with this generation, so you're going to march around in circles in the desert kicking up dust until the last one of you lays your head down. And then I'll have a generation that I can take into the promised land. That's God's track record on unbelief. Verse 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day. His second example is rebellious angels. It's interesting, when God judges human rebellion, that's one thing. But he says God's track record is so consistent that even angels don't get a pass. When they exerted their, their standing and, and rebelled against proper authority, there was a place created specifically for the angels. You do know that hell was not originally designed for human beings. There will be human beings there, but they will be there only because they have chosen to go with those supernatural beings who have earned permanent separation from God by their rebellion. That's what he's talking about. The third example, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these angels indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. He says, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know that fire and brimstone fell from the sky. You know that God came and offered to save the cities if any righteous men could be found there. But when grace had no other option, when mercy had been rejected time and time again, then what we find is it's time for judgment. Jude's point here is those ungodly people who are changing the gospel and bringing division and immorality into the church, they need to ponder that God's track record is consistent and always on target when it comes to, to, to rebellion. Well, let's look at the damage. Verse 8, Yet in the same way, these people, also dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak abusively of angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him an abusive judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people disparage all the things they do not understand and all the things that they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, here's the thing about Jude. It's just 25 little verses, but if you don't know the entire Old Testament, you can't understand this little book because he is just, he's just whipping out one Old Testament illusion after another. We're not going to go through all of them, but, but look at what he says. These people, these, uh, these ungodly people who have come by stealth into the church to influence the direction of the church, to change the content of the gospel, he says, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak abusively of angelic majesties. Now, that's fascinating. They, they are contemptuous of all godly standards. They are disrespectful of God. That is, uh, to defile the flesh, that means they are choosing a lifestyle that is contrary to the, to the purposes that God gave us physical bodies in the first place. They, they reject authority, that is, they disrespect God, and they, they speak abusively of angelic majesties, that is, they disdain angels. He's describing a people who are so convinced that they are spiritually superior to everybody else 
They don't have to follow the rules that God has outlined for his, by his standards. They don't have to uh, show honor to God. And they, they act towards supernatural beings as though uh, the whole creation bows to exalted humanity. He breaks it out. He gives some examples of that. Now, verses nine in, in, in verse nine is uh, a reference. You might say, "Where does this show up?" It says, "But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him an abusive judgment, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." Let me talk to you real quickly about this verse. You're, you're probably thinking, "I I know the Old Testament." pretty well, but I, I, I don't remember where this story comes from. It's because it's not in the Old Testament. This is, a, this is a reference to an apocryphal writing that was called the Assumption of Moses. Now that word assumption, this is the definition of that word that has to do with, um, with being taken to heaven. It's not like I assume something, it's like I am uh, I, I'm carried away. It's the story of the death and burial of Moses. It's apocryphal, which means that it's not recognized by, uh, by ancient Jewish scholars as a, a, an inspired part of the Old Testament record. But Jude is not using it as an, an, an inspired story. He's using it as an illustration, and it would have been out of a writing that his audience would have been familiar with. And so it's much the same way if, if I preach a sermon and I use a, a C.S. Lewis quote and I talk about Aslan, is he safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Well, the Chronicles of Narnia are not inspired in the same way that authoritative scripture is inspired, but there's value to it. For us as we read it and as we ponder it it has it communicates truth in a way that we can draw from and so so to to have a quotation or to tell a story out of a c.s lewis book or, or 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 some other kind of of story is not to suggest that it's on a par with scripture but simply to to use something that that the listeners would recognize to illustrate a point that's being made that's what jude is doing here so he draws from this story of the assumption of moses now what that story says is it is a sort of a creative um, story about when Moses died and God sent Michael the archangel to bury the body. You know, we do not know where Moses's grave was. That's probably uh, by the design of God. We, it, it would have turned into one of the great uh, pilgrimage sites in human history and, and Moses wouldn't have wanted that and God didn't want it. So Moses was buried secretly without uh, identification without a, a marker that we don't know where. But this story says that God dispatched Michael to deliver, to, to bury Moses's body after he died. And the devil comes along and disputes with Michael because he says, Moses was a murderer. I have claim to him. His body belongs to me. Now in the story, Michael doesn't uh, debate the claim. He doesn't issue what Jude calls an abusive judgment. He simply says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, the point of the verse is, is Jude is simply illustrating that even among angels, angels don't take the position that they can uh, speak authoritative uh, against other supernatural beings. But when Michael was being contested uh, by, by the enemy, he, he basically offers a prayer, may Jesus handle this because he's the one that has the right to deal in this situation. Well, what he's suggesting is these false teachers that have come into the church, one of their characteristics is they're not humble enough to see that they're under any authority. They act, they speak, they conduct themselves as though the whole world answers to them. In its most extreme cases, uh, we find 
we find people who tend, who, who tend to, uh, to name it and claim it sometimes in a way that implies that they call the shots and God just jumps like the bellboy who hears the sound. They were disrespectful of God. They disdained angels. And so he uses this illustration about Moses to say even Michael didn't have this attitude that the false teachers have. Verse 10, but these people disparage all the things that they do not understand and all the things that they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they're destroyed. In other words, they're marked by lust, rebelliousness, irreverence. He uses the word in verse 8 that they, are, that they were dreamers. This word seems to signify false claims of revelations. The point here that Jude wanted us to understand is no one is an autonomous moral authority. None of us make up the rules as we go. There are standards by which God evaluates every man. And we live with a humility that says to be in Christ Jesus is to walk in his steps. The whole idea of following Jesus, he, he tells the disciples as he, as he calls each one of them, he says, follow me, follow me. The idea is, is, that, is that picture that we've talked about before of sharing shadows. It's a, it's a term that comes out, out of the Japanese language speaking about the way uh, a martial arts master teaches his students. He puts them literally as close to himself as, as he can get, and they imitate every action, every step, every move that he makes. In fact, they're pressed so closely into him that it's as if they have a single shadow. And that term of, of devotion to learning precisely how the master does it, the term means sharing shadows. That's what we call discipleship. Jesus doesn't say, listen, you go your way and I'll find you and I'll just bless wherever you happen to be. No, he says, walk in my steps, hear what I hear, see what I see, feel what I feel. Share my shadow, walk so closely. You ever, you know, we don't have much deep snow in Oklahoma, but, but you ever, ever been in a place where the snow is real deep and somebody has to sort of make the path and then everybody else tries to step in the exact same holes all the way through. That's the idea here. Jesus is, Jude is telling us that, that as, as followers of Jesus, we're to follow precisely where he leads us. And, let, and yet, that's precisely what these false teachers are not doing. He says, woe to them. And here's another triad. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, it's interesting. We could, um, we could explore this um, if we had more time. But basically, what he's suggesting here is he's using three Old Testament stories. Uh, the story of Cain. Cain was the first murderer. He was the eldest son of Adam and Eve. He killed his brother, uh, writes it off as not my responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, Jewish tradition tells us uh, throughout the Old Testament era that Jude became a teacher of sin, both by example and by instruction. Um, he, he, wherever he went, he, he was marked by a life of rebellion and resentment and bitterness, and that played itself out. He's suggesting that these people uh, are like that. They're teachers. They're instructors in sin. But he says also, uh, for pay, they've given themselves up to the error of Balaam. Now, the story of Balaam, you probably know that this is the story of the talking donkey. It happens in the book of Numbers. Um, the, the, essentially, the story of Balaam is this. Uh, a pagan king comes to him and says, I will pay you money if you will curse 
God's people Israel. And Balaam, um, he goes along, I think he's intrigued by the prospect of of a nice payday. Prophets like preachers didn't make a lot of money in those days. And so here was a, an opportunity to have a payday. Well, he has an encounter with a, with a donkey. Uh, the donkey is used by God to, um, to correct Balaam. So Balaam says, well, I, I can't curse them because, um, because the, God just won't allow me to. And they say, well, well, show us another way. When you read the, in the entire story of Balaam, if you just read the first part, you kind of get the impression that Balaam's a good guy. I mean, he, he stands firm and he, and he won't curse them. But if you read the whole story, if you follow a couple of chapters later, what you find out is Balaam comes up with a plan. See, what you need to do, king, is you need to put some scantily clad women in the line of sight for those Israelite men. Basically, for pay, the story of Balaam is, for pay, he... he concocted a means of temptation that would lead Israel to defile themselves with sin. What's the connection here? Jews said these false teachers, like Cain, they're actually instructors in sin. But it's not always that bold and upfront. Sometimes, like Balaam, for what they can get, they concoct scenarios where people are tempted and fall into sin. It's a characteristic of the false teachers. In our generation, to tell people that sin is okay, that God's love trumps his uh, justice, his holiness, um, that is a, a, a scenario where you create a situation where people can choose sin thinking it's okay so what he did it for pay i had a friend that i that i went to um seminary with we were we were both church history majors in the phd program at the same time we our daughters were both were born in the same hospital on the same day we had breakfast together that day we walked across the stage with our phd graduations on the same day um, he went in a different denominational direction than I did. He went in the direction of what today we would call the more progressive or liberal branch of, of Baptist life. And he called me one day. We were out, we'd been out of seminary a couple of years. And he called me. And he said, listen. Back in the day, we used to call them moderates, moderates and conservatives. They really weren't moderate. They were liberal, but, but that wasn't polite. But he was, he was pastoring a, a, a pretty liberal, good-sized First Baptist Church in a major city in the South, and he called me. He said, listen, if you would just come over to my side. He said, you're a solid preacher. I could get you a church bigger than any church you're ever going to get if you stay with the conservatives. I said, what, what, what are you saying to me? He goes, we don't have any good preachers. Well, why do you think that is? <laughs> he said, listen, there are mega churches that you can get in your 30s because you preach well enough to get them. If you'll just join me. And I said, okay, let me, let me get this straight. For a, a position of prestige and a better paycheck, if I'll just walk away from the Bible and buy into your unbiblical viewpoints, I can be set for life. And he goes, well, you're never going to fit if you act that way. <laughs> he was a good guy. But somewhere along the way, he made a calculated decision that he could get a bigger paycheck and a larger church if he just made a few theological compromises along the way. That's the error of Balaam. And then he says one more. 
They perished in the rebellion of Korah. Uh, that's a great story. Korah, Korah really had two problems. One, he began to lead worship during the, the post-slavery era uh, in, in Israel's life. He began to lead worship in a way that didn't fit God's instructions. In other words, he wanted to do church the way he wanted to do church. The second problem was he was rebellious and, and disdainful of Moses as the appointed man that God had, had chosen to lead Israel. As he gathered a constituency, as he uh, tried to lead Israel in a different direction, as he pushed back against the leadership of Moses, as he, as he badmouthed the leader and tried to, to gather a following, um, man, God literally just opened up the earth and let it swallow him in. Closed it back up. That's an extraordinary story. Jude is not suggesting that, that God is going to do that for false teachers who try and slip into the church. But again, he's saying for those who, like Cain, are instructors in sin, for those like Balaam who make theological compromises in order to get material gain, for those who are like Korah who stand in rebellion to the authority God has put into place and try and do God's things in their own way, God has a consistent track record here. And He will not be he will not be ignored well verse 12 we're in real trouble verse 12 speaking about the false teachers these are the ones who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear like shepherds caring only for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea churning up their own shameful deeds like dirty foam, wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. Okay, real quickly, it's like Jude under the inspiration of the Spirit is just almost, you can almost picture him writing as fast as he can because these images are coming to him of, of, of ways to communicate what these false teachers are like. He has several here. He says they're like hidden reefs in your love feast. What's the scariest thing for a sailor uh, coming into land? It's the rocks that they can't see. The Greek here literally means sunken rocks. It's translated in the New American Standard as hidden reefs. But he says, they've come into your love feast, which was kind of the, the, the first century potluck dinner when they would share the Lord's Supper. He says, they come in to the love feast not to share the community of the faith. They come in uh, to shipwreck the church by putting the focus on themselves. They're hidden reefs and you will crash. They feast with you without fear. What does that mean? It means they have no fear that they are treading on sacred ground when they come into the community of the faithful. They're like shepherds caring only for themselves. You see, what happens when a shepherd who is charged to care and protect for a flock of sheep and the bear comes out of the woods and the shepherd turns tail and runs and leaves the sheep behind him? That's a characteristic of false teachers. They're always going to look out for number one. So he uses this image, shepherds caring only for themselves. Clouds without water carried along by winds. On the coast of, uh, of, of Israel, you would often, especially when the ground was parched during certain seasons, they would see clouds come off of the ocean. And they would be dark, full of water. And yet the wind would just blow them on by without a drop landing on the parched earth it was a, 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 it was like a phony promise they suggested that relief and and nourishment was coming but then the winds would just carry them on he said false teachers are like that they make big promises but they never follow through they never they never improve things they're like autumn trees without fruit doubly dead uprooted when was a, tr a tree most 
expected to have a harvest of fruit late in the fall. The growing season was finished. There should be fruit. It said they're like trees that have had plenty of time and yet they don't produce any fruit. And so they're uprooted. They're doubly dead. This is his description. This is my favorite one. Wild waves of the sea churning up their own shameful deeds like dirty foam. Diane and I are beach people, and we love to go to the beach. We've been to Jamaica and a, a number of other places, and that's kind of, our, that's kind of our, our getaway of choice. But it always fascinates me. You, you go and stay in a nice hotel somewhere, and early in the morning before the people come out to the beach, what you see is people that work for the hotel, they're on the beach, and they have rakes, and they have bags, and what are they doing? They're cleaning up the beach. Why? Because the, the ocean waves through the night... They just churn up the refuse that's in the, in the ocean and they deposit it on the beach. And it's a constant battle because the, the, the trash, in a sense, in the ocean just finds its way to the beach and it's, it's spewed out by the waves as they come on the beach. He says, these are, they're like wild waves of the sea, churning up their own shameful deeds like dirty foam. What a great picture. He says they're like wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved. In the ancient world, to see a, a comet or a meteorite, to see it moving across the sky, a, a shooting star as we call them, um, it was believed that when heavenly bodies didn't stay in their orbits, that that was a, a sign of, of, uh, of, of cosmic rebellion. And he says they're just like, they're just like stars that don't stay where they've been placed. They just go in, in any direction of their own. <sighs> it, was about, it was also about these people that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You say, well, my, that's, a, that's an awkward sentence. But what he's saying is, uh, oh, there again, we references Enoch, and you go, I remember Enoch was in Genesis chapter 5, but I don't remember him actually saying this. Well, here's another apocryphal book that's actually called the book of Enoch. Again, not inspired, not a part of Scripture, but probably familiar to Jude's audience, and so he draws from it as a quotation. His point here is that Enoch uh, really, Enoch is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. You remember, uh, he had such a, a powerful walk with God. It says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In other words, one evening he's walking with God, and God says, you're closer to my house than to yours. Why don't you just come the rest of the way with me? Enoch didn't die. He walked with God in such a way that he was as at home in heaven as he ever was on earth. Because of that tradition of his really powerful uh, life of, of holiness, uh, this book of Enoch is written with these sayings that, that are attributed to him, whether they were actually from him or not, uh, there's no way to know. But the idea here is there was a prophecy from Enoch he refers to, Behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, now how do we understand that? Enoch, in the Old Testament, if he actually said that, was thinking of God coming with probably the angels of heaven to, uh, to, to execute judgment. Verse 15, uh, New Testament, by the time we get to the book of Jude, we understand this as the Lord Jesus coming with that retinue of, of the saints that will be with him on his return where he comes to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds. It's a powerful reminder that no matter how crazy the generation is that, that, that the church lives in, no matter how much opposition there is, the bottom line is Jesus is coming back. So keep your heads up. Don't lose sight of, uh, 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 of the promise. 
We do win. Now, there's no promise. There's no promise that each one of us individually win. We may face martyrdom. We may face persecution. But let me tell you something. If you define the words right, martyrdom is a win. What do we see in, in, in the book of Revelation? The martyrs have the front row seats. Why? Because they paid with no reservations. Nothing held back. They laid down their life. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, he's still talking about these ungodly false teachers. Wraps up in verse 16 with another laundry list. He's just describing their behavior. That's why they're so easy, easy to identify. He says they're grumblers. They find fault with everything. I mean, that's, that's actually what that means, finding fault. It, it, it implies everything. Grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Well, he's telling them, I want you to contend for the faith, but you're not going to have any trouble identifying who it is you're contending with. Because they're always going to put the reality of who they are on display by their actions. They're going to grumble against leadership. They're going to find fault with everything. They're going to flatter where it works to their advantage so that they can gain an advantage over, uh, over other people. Well, here's our strategic responses. Verse 17. Uh, 17 through 19, he's going to talk about... Um, the warnings, but you, beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. He says, you, you know this. I'm not telling you something that you didn't know. These warnings came from the, the original circle of the twelve. I mean, literally from the very earliest moments of the church, this was an issue because this was a strategy of the evil one. Why, why does Ananias and Sapphira, why, do they, why are they struck dead in church in Acts chapter 5? I mean, it would probably spice things up if we would have the occasional person struck dead at the altar in church. I mean, you lie to the Holy Spirit, you come to worship under false pretenses, you say you're one kind of person, but hypocritically you're really a different kind of person. I mean, we'd have to have a committee. We don't have committees, but we'd need a committee to carry people out. They had a committee in Acts chapter 5. The young men came and carried them out. But why did that happen? I mean, it obviously doesn't happen very often but why did it happen there because the church was literally in its infancy and if lying to the holy spirit if hypocrisy before the community of the faithful if that in those very earliest weeks of the birth of the church if that went unchallenged if that went unanswered, essentially the church would have been stillborn. You say, well, you know, when, when, your kid is, when your kid's old enough and he comes in and he's got a scra scraped up knee, if he's old enough, you do what my dad did to me. Oh, rub dirt on it, you'll be fine. But you know what? You don't tell a toddler who's just learning to walk and they stumble and they fall and they start to cry, you don't tell a toddler, oh, just rub dirt on it, you'll be fine. Well, you treat infants differently. Why? Because they need a different level of care. We have the entire New Testament at our disposal. We can memorize it. We can study it. We can teach it. 
We know what the church is meant to look like. We know what the standards of God for our lives, how, they're, how it's laid out. In the brand new church, there were no letters from Paul yet. There were no gospels written yet. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have any of the New Testament. So what did, what did God do? He inspired the disciples even before they began to write the, their, their, um, the words, the inspired words. They spoke inspired words. And they gave warnings from the very beginning. Be careful about false teachers. That will be the enemy's favorite strategy. And 2,000 years later, this this book of Jude is, is disturbingly relevant because that's precisely where we find ourselves. We live in a generation of mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. They, are, they cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. They're devoid of the Spirit. But he says, let me tell you what you need to be like. Essentially, from verse 4 to verse 18... He's, talk, he's, he's talked about these false teachers. In verse 19, he's going to circle back around to verse 3. Verse 3, he said, I, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but instead I need to write to you about, uh, to appeal to you to contend for the faith. And now he's going to tell us how to do that. He's been giving us the identity, the marks of who it is we're standing against, but now he's going to answer the question because you might say, well, how exactly do I contend for the faith? Well, here we go. You start with, with, with spiritual education. Verse, uh, verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, there's that, that title again, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. When he talks about the faith, he's talking about the system of truth that was delivered by the apostles. He says, study theology, understand the word of God. Spend time grasping the revelation that has been provided to you. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. In other words, don't tell me that you don't know how to memorize Scripture. Don't tell me that theology is too hard for you to understand. The bottom line is, we don't have a choice. I mean, we're like soldiers that, that, that say, well, you know, I, I just cannot figure out how to disassemble and reassemble this weapon. What would a drill sergeant say to a private who said, yeah, I, I'm hoping to do something else in the army because I just can't get this whole uh, gun thing down. I can't get this weapon thing down. You know what that drill sergeant would do? He would plant you in a corner and you would disassemble and assemble that weapon 4,000 times. Well, I just can't memorize scripture. I, just, I don't understand the Bible when I read it. Then plant yourself in a chair and ask the Spirit of God, who is our teacher, to show you how to understand scripture. You're not stupid. There is nothing in God's word. That, now, there are things that are hard for us to grasp, but the basic realities, the, the, the core gospel, the essential doctrines of the faith... They are not beyond you, unless you're lazy. Get into the Word of God. Build yourself up. Pursue a spiritual education. And then he says, keep praying in the Holy Spirit. In other words, keep abiding in Christ. Sometimes the defense of the faith is not won by argument alone, it's won by the credibility of a life that we live that looks like Jesus. Peter and John were arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts. And the Sanhedrin looked at them and said, man, these guys don't have any credentials. They, they haven't been to, 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 to preacher school. They, uh, and yet, they sure remind us of that Jesus fellow. Why? Because for three years they shared shadows. They became like Jesus. That's who we're meant to be. Secondly, insulated. He says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? How do you insulate yourselves with God's love? Jesus said, if you love me, 
You'll keep my commandments. The way you insulate yourself in the love of God is you practice an obedient behavior uh, that's been given to us for the Christian life. He says, as you wait or as you look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, waiting in the Christian life is not passive. We're busy at the task until it's time to go. If, if you say, if you go to work and you work an eight-hour day, you clock in, and at a certain time, you're allowed to clock out. Now, if you say, man, it has been a rough day. I am just waiting to clock out. Okay, when you say those words, I'm waiting to clock out, if you mean I'm going to go sit in a chair in the back room and hope nobody finds me until the clock ticks out and I can go home, you're going to be in real trouble. In fact, you might get to go home before you clock out. But if what you mean is I, I'm, I, I'm just waiting to clock out and go home, if what you mean is I'm still doing my job, I'm still working until that time comes, then you have a grasp of what Jude is suggesting here. He's saying as you look forward to that day, we're not passively sitting on a mountaintop waiting for the return of Christ. We're about the business, but it's not unfair for us in the struggle of daily life to say, man, I am just holding on. I'm just waiting for Jesus to break through the clouds. But waiting for Jesus to break through the clouds is not passive behavior, it's active behavior. We are about the task that's been given to us. All right, real quickly, this is where we finish. He says, you're separated, verse 22 and 23, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Basically, he says, you're separated from sin, and so you have three approaches to the people around you. There are people who are having trouble believing in Jesus because they are overwhelmed by the culture that we live in. That, that is, that they are doubting. They're just not sure it's true. They just don't know if they can hold on to it. You, fall, you, you, you deal with that person by sharing them what's true, by living a life of credibility, by having conversation that helps them come to the conclusion that the Word of God is in fact true. You approach doubters that way. But there's a second category. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. There's a second category of people who, um, who are not just... Um, unsure about Jesus, they're actively participating in the things of this world. They've bought into the worldview that's presented. They, they, they've, they've swallowed the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. He says you've got to be patient because presenting the gospel to those kind of people, it's like, it's like snatching them out of the fire. They don't even realize the danger they're in. You're on a rescue mission. With those who are doubting, patient conversation, credible life. With those who are actively involved, you're, you speak with a little more urgency because you're trying to snatch them from the fire. But there's a third group. He says, and on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. If the first group are those who just aren't sure enough to follow Jesus yet, they just don't know if they can believe it, that requires patience and credibility. The second group are those that have swallowed the, uh, the offerings of the world and they're caught up in it. You use urgency. You snatch them from the fire. But then there are those who are the ones creating the chaos. This is a very different group. You have mercy on them. You pray for their salvation. You interact as you can, but with fear. People say, well, well, shouldn't I hang out with lost people? Well, do you see there are three categories? Lost people who just need someone who will help them understand. Lost people who need to be confronted because they're not creating the chaos of our culture, but they've bought into it. And you're, with an urgency, you're presenting truth and you're, you're appealing with them to be reconciled with God. You're snatching them from the fire. But there is another group, and they're the ones pushing all of this. 
We approach them with mercy, but with fear. We are careful. I would say this is not the group that you hang out with because there is usually, um, it's not impossible for somebody in that kind of category to come to Christ. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the movers and shakers who set the agenda and tear down civilization by opposing the values that come from the Word of God. There are a lot of people that you know that have just been swallowed up by the surrounding culture. But I'm talking about the people who are shaping the culture in ungodly ways, and they're doing it on purpose. We approach them with mercy, but with fear, because we hate even the garment that's polluted by the flesh. Last two verses. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen basically this benediction that's a a fancy word that just means a closing blessing these last two verses are one of the great benedictions of the new testament what he's doing is he's telling us that if you as a reader of this letter are willing to give your life to contend for the faith The one thing that you can know is whether you win your particular battle or not, you will be on the winning side of the war. To him who is able, I love this, to keep you, to protect you. I like the, there's another translation, the earlier New American Standard uh, says able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. Think about those three those three stages. He's not saying he'll, he'll stop you um, from falling. He's saying he can even keep you from stumbling. To stumble is that, that first awkward and funny step before you fall. He said, he said God is able to even keep you from stumbling, to guard you against even the early stages of falling. But not only will he keep you from stumbling, he'll make you stand He will lock you down where you have a firmness. You have dug in your heels, but in the right place. And he'll make you able to stand. And then you'll be blameless with great joy. Folks, this is a supernatural act that God does in us as we abide in Jesus Christ. We only stand in the presence of his glory when we are made blameless by his work in us. He says, to the only God, our Savior, that is the source of all blessing that comes to us. He says, we ascribe, remember ascribe doesn't mean we give it to God. It means we acknowledge that God has it. We ascribe glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. That's eternity preexistent now and forever, eternity future. One story I read a number of years ago that I've never forgotten. There was a, an attorney, uh, not an attorney, there was a, uh, what's the position called when the Surgeon General, top doctor in America. Uh, there, was a, there was a Surgeon General one time by the name of C. Everett Koop. You might remember him. His son was named David. David Koop died Um, At a very early age, I think he was just 21 maybe, he was a junior at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Um, He called home uh, during college, he called home every Sunday evening um, at 9 o'clock. I always remember that detail because when I was in college, you know, we still had collect calls and all those kinds of things that our kids don't know anything about. And I called home every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock. Well, that was their pattern as well. David would call his parents every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock. In April of 1968, it was Sunday evening, and 9 o'clock came and went, and there was no call. About 10 o'clock, a dean of the school, at, a, a dean at Dartmouth College called with the news 
that um, David had been in a rock climbing accident. A steel spike had come loose and he had fallen to his death. Well, you can imagine how devastated the Coop family was. Eventually, they go through the funeral and, and all of the things that go with that. And after it was all said and done, it was time to go clean out his room in the dormitory. And they finally, after several weeks, got around to, to go in. The, the room had been, uh, been left like it was. They went and cleaned out his, his stuff. And they found his Bible. It was beside his bed. Apparently that's where he read it every morning. He was a solid Christian young man. And they opened it up to find that there was a bookmark. And it was right on this page where he had underlined Jude 24. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. And Dr. Coop, later, in later years, would write about that discovery. And he said this about his son. He did stumble and he fell to his death. But Jude promises us that when he stood before God, there was no stumble there. He stood firm and blameless before the glory of God because he had been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. Don't let a false teacher tell you a different gospel. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible book and for all that it holds for us. Father, I pray that as we have pondered uh, in just the quickest of surveys, these 25 verses, I pray that you would draw us back to these verses and give us more uh, depth and more uh, insight as we ponder them under the leadership of your Spirit. Father, teach us to walk in love, to walk in truth, to contend for the faith, so that in this generation we endure, we fight the fight. We answer the call. Father, let that be known of us, a people called Evergreen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.